If you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we're looking this morning as we continue to adore Jesus through His Word. We're looking this morning at John 1, verses 9 to 13. Let us adore Jesus as we give attention to the Word. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God I don't know whether you noticed the title for the sermon this morning in the worship folder uh, the irony of Christmas I suppose most of us when we think of Christmas think of it as a merry time rather than a time of irony uh, particularly, but actually irony is one of the, the thematic uh, techniques, if you like, that John uses in his gospel over and over again, and also in the passage in front of us. Uh, personally, I love irony, if that is not being ironic. Not, not everyone does, I realize, but usually I think that's because people consider irony as the same as sarcasm or cynicism. Actually, they're quite different. Sarcasm or cynicism is usually something negative or usually employed that way to, to tear someone down rather than build someone up. But irony is a technique, certainly in the ancient world, from which John is drawing some of these dramatic um, approaches that he uses in his gospel was actually a technique to help those who are listening, hearing, being involved in the reading and watching the drama unfold before them, to help them have an aha moment, <laughs> to see things differently, to see things that they've been used to hearing about and go, oh, now I see. Actually, this technique really goes back to Socrates, who in, his, uh, in the dialogues of, of Plato recorded uh, his master Socrates, the, the, the technique that we now call the Socra Socratic method. And Socrates is there described as asking questions uh, to, to not spoon-feed the answer, you know, just impart information, but to get the brain thinking so that someone who is listening to it can go, oh, uh, now I see, uh, aha. I get it. That Socratic method of asking questions and involving the person so they see now, not being spoon-fed. Actually, we have from the ancient world records of physicians, doctors, prescribing their patients to go to the theater and watch the dramatic uh, production unfold with its irony in order to give them mental health so they could see things differently. 
You see, at the time, unlike our movies, where usually when you go to a movie, you're not that familiar with the story in most cases. Then the theater was usually about a well-known story, and the point was you went there and you knew what was about to happen, but the actors in the drama, as they're involved in the story, do not know. And so there's a dramatic irony as you watch them going through the story, and you know what's going to happen, and they don't. And it gives you an aha. Uh-huh. Now I see. Now I see what that story is about. Uh, a more recent example came from a Christian uh, writer a few years ago who was talking about, he wrote a, a little story about Christmas and how there were two characters in this story. One was the sort of archetypal, pious kind of Christian stereotype, and the other person was apparently not a believer. He, he, you know, he had a long beard and he smoked a pipe and he didn't say the right kind of things, or the right kind of terminology. And as the story, uh, that story unfolded, there was a Christmas party. And at the Christmas party, to the uh, surprise of the very pious person, suddenly all the people at the Christmas party gathered around the bearded, pipe-smoking individual, apparently an unbeliever, and they asked him about the meaning of Christmas, the real meaning of Christmas, and he explained and led them to Jesus. The irony was that the person you least expected in the story to understand the real meaning of Christmas was actually the person who did and who explained it to you. Aha, now I see. John, as I say, uses this technique quite often in his gospel to help his readers understand and see things from a different light and really grasp it. It's an ongoing theme throughout the book. The characters of the story say things which we know have a higher, bigger truth about which they, as they go through the drama, seem ignorant. The most famous example of this irony is in John chapter 11, when Caiaphas says that it would be better for Jesus to be killed than for the whole nation to die. What Caiaphas meant was that uh, they should go ahead and plot against Jesus and and put him to death so that the whole nation would not lose its privileged status in the Roman Empire. But then the author of the gospel steps out of the narrative and explains the irony of the statement in in case we miss it. I quote, "He, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. That's what it's really about. The irony of the drama is being used to help us see the real meaning of the event. Aha, now I see. The same sort of thing occurs throughout uh, chapter 7 of uh, the gospel, John's gospel. Several times, uh, the, uh, the people who are quizzing Jesus ask him about his origin. You know, you, where do you come from? And it's ironic because we know, having read John's prologue, that where Jesus really came from was on a much higher plane. He is the eternal, pre-existent, divine Logos and they're arguing about whether he came from Bethlehem or Galilee. It is ironical. Not cynical or sarcastic, but ironic because it is showing us in a subtle way that there's a deeper or higher meaning and helping us see that. You see, the same sort of thing occurs at the cross. Several times in that uh, part of the the story, there there are statements which are true about Jesus 
at a deep and profound level, but are uttered in a way by people in the drama that is ironic because they do not seem to realize what they're saying. For instance, Pilate says, Here is the man. In Latin, famously, echo homo. Behold the man. And of course, well, we know from John's prologue again that this is the God-man incarnate. Eke homo, indeed. Behold the man. The man. It is ironic. Uh, the religious leaders proclaim in protest uh, uh, when they're trying to make sure that Jesus does get put to death. They say to, to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. That is, I think, in some ways the most astonishing irony for they were a nation that was wanting to rebel against Caesar because they wanted to be put back to a theocracy. We have no king but Caesar. Pull the other one. The most obvious irony of all is the notice pinned to the cross itself. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Well, yes, indeed, and much more than that. Now, the first Christmas was also ironic in this sense that I'm describing. Here's one definition of irony. The basis of irony in a vision of truth means that irony aims at amendment of the incongruous rather than its annihilation. In other words, the aha moment. Now I see. Well, these verses describe the irony here at the first Christmas in a couple of different ways. And my goal this morning, here's what I'm trying to achieve. My goal this morning is that we would all, you and I, wonder at the shocking grace of God at Christmas. Here are these couple of ways. Receive Jesus first because He made you. This is verses 9 to 13. Look down with me at the text. Can you see it? John writes, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What's the irony? The irony here is based actually upon hubris, the the astonishing pride and arrogance, the hubris of creatures rejecting their creator. So Jesus, as the true light, comes into the world. He was in the world, the one who gave light to the world, is the light of the world, is the source of light. He made everything. The creator turns up and the creature does not recognize him. Creature does not receive him. This is astonishing ignorance, the basis of irony, and ignorance of a particular kind, namely hubris. The creature did not receive him and did not know him. The ignorance is based upon, in John's description, an implicit unwillingness to receive. He came to his own, not just his own people Israel, though that's there too, but the world, which was made through him. He came to his own creatures. He came into the world and was not known, recognized, accepted, or received. 
See, here's, here's, think about it. Isn't this right? Here's a key part of the drama of the story of Christmas. It's built upon this irony, upon this hubris, this kind of irony. Think about the most familiar part of, a, of every Christmas pageant. You know, there's no room for them at the inn. Now, what is it that makes that so telling, so significant, so meaningful? Well, partly because here's a pregnant woman and it's cold outside and they don't have anywhere warm. You see, that's part of it. But there's more to it than that. John tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive it. The real owner of the inn is rejected by the innkeeper. The owner of the world is rejected by the world. Perhaps you know King Lear from uh, Shakespeare's drama. The, the, the actors in this drama are doing things far greater dramatic irony than King Lear's daughters rebelling against King Lear who are given them the means by which to rebel against him as a gracious gift and then throw him out into the wilderness where he howls against the wind. The king who has given to his daughters his kingdom and in thanks they reject him. Far greater than that is this hubris, this irony. One TV program I saw told the story of a young man who had been adopted as the inheritor of a massive fortune by an older man. He became impatient to receive his fortune, and so he bumped the older man off. He killed him to get his money. This hubris is greater than that. For while the gift of an inheritance is a donation, this is a relationship not of recipient of inheritance to donor, but of creature to creator. I, mean, I suppose the closest in our human analogy would be that of parent to child. But even that is insufficient. For a child is not the creation of a parent ultimately. And the parents themselves even are creatures too. Oh, John puts it like this. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. That statement right there should ring with shocking hubris, a noise as jarring, I think, as the sound of that famous murder scene in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. It is an astonishing irony. Surely there'll be a judgment for something so terrible. The space between the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12 is long enough for a heart to stop beating. It's a space that's been filled by our culture today. Dietrich Bonhoeffer gave a now famous radio address immediately after Adolf Hitler had been elected to office. Bonhoeffer went over his allotted time on the radio. It's a temptation to go too long that many a preacher has fallen into in their time. And the end of his, uh, his speech was cut off because uh, the radio broadcast had finished and switched to something else. But if his, his speech, his sermon, his talk had carried on, everyone listening would have heard his final sentence, which was this, his conclusion. And I quote, Leader and office that turn themselves into gods mock God. For the creature to refuse to accept the Creator with his laws and order and moral code is for the creature to turn himself into one of the gods and in doing so to mock God. 
the hubris of this space is shocking. Surely God cannot long admit being turned out of the inn, out of the public square of government, out of the education of our children, out of the arts and media and movies, out of even some so-called churches who claim and give lip service to the Christ of the Bible but rarely actually open the Bible to teach from it at all. Yet, even more shocking than the end of verse 11 is the beginning of verse 12 and the message of verses 12 and 13. Verses 9 to 11 have the shocking irony of hubris. But now we have the far greater shock, the wonder, the wonder of the irony of the grace of God at the first Christmas. So first receive Jesus because He made you. He made you. He made you. Receive Him. He is your Creator. Second, receive Jesus because He will remake you. So look down again at the text with me, if you will, my friends. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the world of flesh, nor of the world of man, but of God. Now, uh, friends, before I apply the amazing grace of this first Christmas from these couple of verses and help us to wonder at it, I need, I, I trust, by God's grace and His power, I need to explain some technical aspects of this part that are much discussed at the passage, and as I do so, they will further illustrate the irony and hence, therefore, help us wonder at the shocking grace of God at Christmas. It's not just by happenstance or randomly, it's going to drive in the same point. Here's the technical aspect of this part of the passage. This is the phrase. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Well, perhaps you've asked yourself this as you looked at it. What does this mean? Does this mean that there are certain different kinds of ways that someone could be born? Blood, will of the flesh, will of man. And if so, what are these different categories? Is blood to do with inheritance? And if so, how is that different from the other two categories? Is flesh somehow to do with concupiscence or intemperate desire? And if so, why is that the case when flesh is not primarily used that way in John? And even in Paul, while flesh can mean that, it certainly does not always mean that. If flesh does mean that here, what is different about blood and will of the flesh and will of man? Is will of man the will of the husband as opposed to the will of the wife? And so what will we be saying then about how birth planning is normally done or something, you know? In short, if you start down the track of trying to pass out different possible categories for these different three descriptions, then you fairly rapidly drive into an hermeneutic interpretive dead end of multiple possibilities of meaning and frankly lack of certainty as to which could be right. So more likely then is the view which I hold that what the author means here is overlapping descriptions of human choice or action instead of by contrast God's choice or action. This is confirmed by the irony 
of the passage. Those who have been made by God reject God. However, those who receive God are not just received by God too. They are given the right to become children of God, a supernatural new birth, born of God himself. Those made by God who receive God are remade. They are made new. They are born again. This is not only the last thing in the world that you would expect could happen. So this is not only the sort of thing that Nicodemus later objected to when when he said to Jesus, how then is this possible? Can a man re-enter his mother's womb and be born again? This is not only shocking because it seems so against nature or above nature or supernatural. It is shocking because it is by kind of double irony. Exactly the last thing you would expect God to do, having been rejected by his creation. Those who turn themselves into gods mock God. He is left out in the cold, outside the inn, for there's no room for him in the inn, in the playground, in the office, in the government, in the school, in the theology department, I'm afraid, sometimes. And what does he do? Surely he blasts them to smithereens and sends the whole sorry lot to hell? No. But to all who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, born of God. Not natural, not just who they are as naturally his creatures, but now something even more amazing, grace upon grace. His new creation. Those born of God, those children of God. King Lear finds his rebellious daughters and supernaturally gives them, if they receive him, a new heart, a new desire to be newly made daughters. When our world should deserve the fate of hell, it receives the gift of heaven. The inheritor who tries to steal the inheritance and murder his grandfather is given, if he receives him, a new nature and a new inheritance, not just the same as before, but as a child of God, born of God, with this right, this power, this access to the grace of God being born of God. The contrast between the first part of the passage, the hubris of irony, with the second part of the passage, the irony of grace, should then cause us to wonder at the sheer shocking grace of God at Christmas. What is required? Receiving Jesus. Who may do it? Anyone who receives Jesus. This passage should take away your guilty fears if you receive Jesus. Uh, John Bunyan, author of Pilgrim's Progress, I've been dipping into some of his, his other writings a little bit recently. He also wrote another book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And in it, he, he, he encourages those of us who have the opportunity to share Jesus with other people to make clear this shocking grace of God. He writes this, You know the heart of a stranger. For you yourselves were strangers in the land of Egypt. You know the fears and doubts and terrors that take hold of them. For that they sometimes took hold of you. Wherefore pity them, pray for them, encourage them. They need all this. May we have 
crystal clear in our minds and hearts the sheer, shocking grace of God to all who will receive Jesus. May we wonder at it. May we taste it. Suck on it in your mouth like sweet wine, swilling it around, but not spitting it out again as at a wine tasting. Drinking deep of the sheer shocking grace of God this Christmas, like a communion. Those who received him were not beaten up, they were not torn down, they were not reprimanded and disgraced, they were graced. They were born of God. They are born of God. The sheer shocking grace of God, not something I do. I receive, to be sure. God gives the right to become children of God. The sheer shocking grace of God. May you wonder at it. May you taste it. May you savor it. The hubris of verses 9 to 11 is true too. To be sure, the shock horror of there being no room at the inn. But that makes verses 12 to 13 even more full of grace and therefore should fill us with wonder and praise. Who deserved this? No one. Who earned this? No one. Who bought this? No one. Who won this in a competition or made it happen by their own will or effort or decision? No one. Who has it? Anyone and everyone who receives Jesus. The irony of grace. What you'd expect after verses 9 to 11. Hell. What you find after verses 9 to 11. Heaven for all who will receive Jesus. They crucified him, king of the Jews. He died for the nation and for all the nations of the world. He was not from Bethlehem or Galilee. He was from God, the Logos, the Word in human flesh, born into this world that all who receive Him might have the right to be born of God. Savor that word. Right. A right. Not something anyone can take away from you. It is His gift. And now it is yours if you have received. You now have the right. You have the status. You have the power. You have the position as a child of God. Those who by nature are objects of wrath, the irony of hubris, and now by grace, if they receive Jesus, children of God, the irony of grace. And it is this Sheer, shocking grace that changes the world. The sheer wonder of the grace of God caused a small group of ministers, political activists and others, to meet together in Clapham in London at the turn of the 19th century. They were derided as the Clapham Saints or the Clapham Sect. They were an informal association bound by wonder at the sheer, shocking grace of God that led one of their members, William Wilberforce, to fight against slavery. When you wonder at grace, you are set free to set others free. Wonder at grace. That is, ask yourselves this, who, me? Me, a child of God? Ask yourself 
this, me with all my sin? What then would I not do to set others free? Revel this morning, glory this morning, wonder this morning at the angels calling the star, the light of the world, rejected by his own and yet to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. If you do, the results could be momentous for your home, your marriage, your business. Your school? Sociologist Charles Murray, in his book Coming Apart, describes the fracturing of civic society in America from 1960 to 2010 at the same time as, he says, the central fact about American religion is that since 1960 it has, I quote, become more secular across the board in every socioeconomic class. You say to yourself, what's the solution to the fracturing of our society here and around the world? What can we do? Wonder at grace. Revel in the sheer shocking irony of a God who was rejected, yet for all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Start your own Clapham Society. Form a society at work to pray for your business and advocate for the sheer shocking wonder of the grace of God. But it all starts with that wonder. Hear the angels. See the infant baby. The creator of the world, shockingly, rejected, crucified, spat upon by his creation His response, surely hell and damnation. Yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I don't know whether you've seen the new Doctor Who series. In one episode, the, uh, the doctor's sidekick has to make a decision as to whether to turn her car left or right at a junction. And as she turns left, all of time and the universe begins to unravel. It's an idea drawn, of course, from chaos theory that the flapping of a butterfly wing in one part of the world would cause a hurricane somewhere else because our world is so intricately interconnected, fine-tuned, and all the rest. This is grace theory. One person, ten people, a thousand people or more wondering at the sheer, shocking grace of God this Christmas. The results? Momentous. Receive Jesus and be born of God. How much bigger than that can you get? Perhaps you're, you know, you've heard this before. 
Let the irony go to work. The creatures rejecting the Creator. The Creator giving new birth to the rebellious creature who will receive Him. It's intended to make you think again. To have that aha moment. To place yourself in the story. Behold the man. It's better that one man die for the nation and the whole nation perish. Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. Let this ironic vision of truth amend the incongruity of a creature rejecting its creator. John Maynard Keynes, the economist, was once accused of changing his mind about monetary policy. He replied to that person, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Perhaps it is time to change your mind. To no longer ignore Jesus, reject Jesus, but Receive Jesus. What could be more ironical than you, the creature, having an opportunity to receive Him into your life, the life that He gave you in the first place? What could be more ironical? What could be more truthful? What could be more wonderful? Let's pray together. Our Father God, would you help us to wonder at the sheer shocking grace of God this Christmas? Would you help us to receive Jesus this Christmas? And so, be born of God. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.